He was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gut smoke. Hello, and welcome back to the Via Pony Express podcast, your source for everything you need to know about Jonah Hex, as well as news and reviews focusing on Western comics in general. I'm Susan Hillwig, author of an illustrated history of Jonah Hex. Joining me, as always, is Darren Schroeder, curator of the website The Jonah Hex Corral. Kiora. And also, we have Dwayne Hendrickson of the Hex centric blog Matching Dragoons. Howdy. And fortunately, our usual cohort, Arya Bahari, is on assignment today. She is being assistant director on a musical comedy, I believe. She's here in spirit. For this episode, you have the three amigos here, and we shall be taking care of you. For those of you who may have missed the previous episode, we're currently doing a look back at the events in Jonah Hex's history that shaped him into the bounty hunter he is today. We've already gone over the bulk of his childhood, and now we're moving on to his teenage years, followed by a highlight reel of his experiences in the Civil War and beyond. But before we wade into that conflict, here's a rundown of all the Hex-related news and appearances cropped up lately, starting with something that was announced while Episode 2 was in the editing stage. Yeah, if you may or may not have heard, uh, Jonah Hex is finally getting an omnibus, an actual hardcover, full-color omnibus. This is, again, announced right at... Yay! Everybody cheer! This was announced right as we were putting episode two in the can, so we weren't able to get it on. But that's okay, because a couple weeks ago, all the plans changed on the uh, Omnibus. It was originally announced as the Jonah Hex Bronze Age Omnibus Volume 1, and that was supposed to do all the two all-star Western issues, all the weird Western tales, his first self-titled series, all the way up to issue 17, I believe they had planned, and one of his first guest starring appearances in Justice League America 159 and 160, and possibly the lost Jonah Hex story, the four-pager that was supposed to go in what eventually became DC's humor magazine Plop, was eventually run in. Amazing World of DC Comics, number 13. But anyways, that doesn't matter. Because a few weeks ago, they announced that they were absolutely changing the book. That was originally set for all that stuff. It was going to be about $125, a big, big book. Well, apparently, somewhere in the last month or so, DC, in their infinite wisdom, has decided that things with the word Bronze Age on them don't sell well. So they pulled that solicit along with about four others that had the word Bronze Age in them and repackaged them, resolicited them. The downside of this is we lose about a third or so of what was supposed to be in the original book. We go from the omnibus to the short bus. Yeah, we're on the short bus now. Yes, yeah, yeah. it is now being solicited as Weird Western Tales Jonah Hex. It still says Volume 1, even though it's going to have the entirety of the Weird Western Tales run in there. Not unless they're going to go on and collect all the Scalp Hunter stuff later. I, we don't know. But yeah, now it is simply Weird Western Tales Jonah Hex Volume 1. And that's All-Star Western 10 and 11, Weird Western Tales 12 through 14. And then of course, we, we skipped number 15, Jonah wasn't there. And Weird Western 16 through 38. And it's a hundred dollars. You lost a third of the book, and they only chopped off twenty-five bucks. That hurts. Yep. <laughs> no one understands the economics of comics. No, uh, I've been discussing this actually lately with some other folks in regard regards to other stuff, and I came to a terrible realization the other day that 
back in the day when it was 10 cents, 15, 25 cents of issue and everything like that, a lot of these guys weren't really being paid very well. They didn't have creator's rights, nothing like that. So I'm thinking that's the real reason why these books were so darn cheap. It's because the overhead was so low. It has nothing to do with the cost of ink or the cost of paper or anything like that. It's the fact that they're actually paying these people a decent wage now. The, the downside of it is you pay 4 or $5 an issue. I may be wrong, but that's just my hmm. theory right now. Well, yeah, and I know there's a lot of differences with regards to the contracts as far as the creators owning content and getting slices of the pie for everything from, mm-hmm. you know, underoos to movie rights. Oh, yeah. Chuck Dixon was very happy. I remember when Batman and Robin came out, even though it wasn't the greatest movie, because he got paid for Bane. Even though they changed the heck out of the character, he still got a check for that. Comes in Even handy. In the- oh, yeah. It mm-hmm. can be a bit uh, random, though, because I saw with Joker, Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMathis. They get a credit at the end, is some of the comic creators. And DeMathis has said on Twitter, he doesn't know what that's about. No one's contacted him and confirmed anything about it in re- any real detail. For the Joker movie, he got a credit? Yeah, and the thanks to you know the list of comic creators who should be acknowledged. I have this humongous question mark over my head over that one. I can't even think of why. He can recall a couple of stories he worked on. It's harder to pin down Keith Giffen what his input would be, but some sites have traced it back to a um, in the Doctor Fate four-part miniseries, and there's a Doctor in Arkham Asylum who is vaguely referred to in the movie. Oh, and yeah. Demethis thinks that's probably un- an unlikely thing to get a credit for, but it's possible that uh, a lawyer looked at it and said, who created that character? Where did he come from? Credit yeah. them so they don't sue us. It doesn't funny, sound heard- like any paperwork or check or anything has actually got to him yet. Yeah, I've heard of some of these, with some of these guys with comic book movies, it's like, all you get is a name up there. You may not get a check. I think it depends on how big of a chunk it is, since obviously they didn't, If unless they created the character. I can't say about that one. But back on the whole bit about removing the Bronze Age stuff because they think it doesn't sell well, it reminds me of back in the day when they thought gorillas sold comics, so they put gorillas on covers. Yeah, Or or I've heard uh, back when it was really heavy in the 1960s, DC versus Marvel, and DC's trying to figure out why does Marvel sell so well? They have a lot of word balloons on their covers. Let's put more word balloons on. Marvel gets wind of this. They take all the word balloons off. Uh, There's a lot of red on their covers. Let's put a lot of red on there. Marvel starts taking all the red off just to screw with them. I don't know if this is true, but that's what this feels like. It feels like they're taking something very, very arbitrary, and, well, that must be the reason why this isn't selling. And in this case, we hadn't even made it to press. they just like, okay, we're going to rip this off, and we're going to take all this out. And yeah, the only upside I can see to it is, again, with it being Weird Western Tales and a volume one on it, maybe they'll reprint the rest of the Weird Western stuff, you know, go back to All-Star Western 1 through 9, reprint that, reprint the issue 15, which I think is just El Diablo, and then print, would that be 39 through 70 for Scalp Hunter? It's, a, I'd call it a consolation prize, you know, mm. but it would be nice if they went and they got their heads out of their butts and printed the rest of it, too, because there really is no reprints out there. The showcase is long and over done with. It's not being reprinted anymore. I'm not too sure if the Welcome to Paradise trade they did when the movie came out nine years ago is still in print. I'd hazard to say not. You would think that really if they're worried about the cost of things and things not selling, that they'd just be chucking a whole lot of stuff onto the digital side of things with the DC Universe, the sort of access to comics and things. 
Yeah, dcuniverse.com, yeah. Whenever they do a book and they're getting the artwork done, an easy matter for them just go, right, we've done it for printing, take a copy of that, shove it up online and give access to that. But they don't seem to have a particular strategy about it won't sell at 120, so let's put it on digital and see what happens. That would be nice. But yeah, I know even the DC Universe stuff is very scattershot. I, full disclosure, I don't have a subscription. And so I've tried looking around there without a subscription and the Jonah Hex content is very scattershot. I've seen it up there for a while, then I've seen it disappear. And last I checked a few months ago, I think it was back, but it's all the newer stuff. I don't think they really have any of the older stuff up there that I recall. If I'm mistaken, listeners, you go ahead, you know, let it, let us know otherwise. Let us know if you've downloaded anything off of dcuniverse.com hexwise. But let's move on to what you can get a hold of. Absolutely. Which is, this actually ended a few months ago, Adventures of Super Sons. If you recall, we had Robohex turning up in that. Finally got issue 11 through 12, even though Robohex got blown to pieces in uh, issue 10, which is where we left off last time. And the last just, couple of issues... Just as Tommy Tomorrow shows up. Yeah, what'd you do to my robot? <laughs> Levy yells at one point. So we really don't get much anywhere through the last of it, but there is a bit of an explanation. I believe, Dwayne, you were the one that mentioned last time that you thought this might have been like an homage to Bob Haney with we're just throwing everything in we're not really doing continuity it's just whatever we feel like doing yeah, yeah I didn't pick up 11 and 12 so I was going to ask you what the origin was that we learned it turned out that you were pretty right on the nose they literally in issue 12 call this an imaginary story <laughs> uh, I swear I swear Comics, apparently I I'll be honest, I haven't looked at them in a couple of months, but apparently there was some object called a hypercube, which I believe they were chasing through the series as well. That's where our little Junior Lex Luthor and Junior Joker and everybody were after one of those. I can rule the universe if I have this thing. Well, apparently this thing goes all the way back to the beginnings of the universe and had been absorbing experiences, absor absorbing life. And apparently at some point it either observed or came into the hands of Jonah Hex, which is why it was able to later make a robo-hex of him. You know, it's oh like, I know God. who Jonah Hex is, I know how he acts so I can emulate it. Boom, here's a robot that thinks he's Jonah Hex. But apparently he wanted to make his own life, his own stories, his own imaginary stories. So he made this Junior Lex Luthor, he made this Junior Joker, he made all this crazy stuff out there in the world, and unfortunately his creations kind of got out of his control sets where the Super Sons came in, they had to help rein it all in. Why everybody else gets to be a real person but Jonah Hex has to be a robot, I cannot explain. Other than Westworld, I don't know. Mm. I read them, but they didn't really stick in my mind those last couple of issues. It was a it was a bit Tomasi, hectic. Yeah, Peter Tomasi, he's he's good when when he's on, he's on. But then he sometimes gets a little too out there. It's a little it's a bit to be a little bit too much, and that's how I kind of chalk this one up to. It's like this is a little bit beyond. Maybe I'm just getting old. It's a little bit beyond my understanding some of this. But it was cute. It was amusing. But at the same time, it annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> It was mainly because I just can't really get uh, a feel for Damian Wayne. I don't, I just don't really like him. John's okay. Little Superboy, he's fine. But uh, Damian, I just don't like. It's like, heck, the uh, the newest issue, uh, the newest uh, Legion Superhero series just hit. And I was debating about picking it up. And then I found a couple of issues Damian's supposed to join him. I'm like, no, I'm not buying this now. Yeah, Damian kind of exists outside of my realm of comics. Uh, just oh. never bought into the whole premise. He's... I know he's there. I don't expect anything of him, and I just kind of, he's a guy running around and stuff, so. Well, it's just like, I know it's like, you're going to get into, you're going to join the Legionnaires, and you're going to try and run everybody. I know you, Damien, I know this is what you do. I can't, so I, I'm staying off of Legion of Superheroes. 
But again, we're moving on. We're moving on to other stuff. Speaking of alien worlds with the Super Sons, Jonah was in outer space with Wonder Woman. Yeah, we got a little little bit of that, little bit of that to cover. That's uh, wrapped up finally as well. All the Walmart giants involving Jonah Hex have wrapped up. They wrapped up a couple of months ago. And just about all of them have been reprinted. If you go to your local shop, you can get it. The Wonder Woman stuff is titled Wonder Woman Come Back to Me. The Batman stuff was titled Batman Universe. They're just about done with the reprints on that one, I think. And this month in uh, November and December, I believe, is when they're all getting collected into trade. So if you miss the Walmart stuff, if your Walmart near you does not carry them, you can go talk to your local comic shop and they should be able to hook you up with the reprints. But yeah, with the Wonder Woman stuff, let's see. I believe when we left off, Jonah was in a little uh, stasis tank and he was literally snoozing through the story. And eventually it revived him so he can watch Wonder Woman and this gal they hooked up with in the uh, jungle place, Scylla, fight. I guess it turns out she's some tyrannical alien princess chick. So unfortunately, again, Jonah's doing backseat on a lot of this. Mm. He shows up and shoots when other characters go, oh, I don't know that you should shoot. Well, that's what I'm here for. And and then the plot uh, moves on. Yeah, I mean, it is a Wonder Woman book, so it's normal that he's going to take more of a backseat. It's going to be more of a focus on Wonder Woman. But it's kind of disappointing when all you're seeing is just him in the background. It's like, I just want to knock somebody in the head. Come on. Although a couple of issues before that when he was shooting dinosaurs, that was fun. But the best he gets in uh, issue number five is they're all in a cell, and he suggests that they do the old fake that you're six, you can knock out the guards routine. And it worked. <laughs> so he contributed that. Yeah, Not I like time when they mentioned that that was a really old trick, and then they kind of realized, well, he's a really old guy, so that's kind of old. <laughs> yeah, but Wonder Woman's older than him. Yeah. That's true, that's true. Yeah, I think it depends on what timeline you go by. Yeah, I'm lost. You're talking about you don't, Dwayne, you're saying about you don't really keep up on Damien. I can't keep up on the Wonder Woman stuff anymore. But then in the last issue of this, don't they go, well, we're all going back to our own times, and I wonder whether we'll remember any of this or not. Who knows? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a nice little fudge there. It's like, well, maybe this will be referenced later. Maybe it won't. We don't even get to see uh, Jonah land back up with Tallulah. But yeah, we do get a little bit of shoot. He does get to shoot some people in issue six and issue seven. It's basically just, bye, it was fun, and he's gone. Which is kind of also what we get with the Batman giant stuff. Last issue we left off, I think, was issue, uh, is there issue nine or ten? We saw Jonah last in Batman giant number nine after Batman got brought back to the present. Vandal Savage shot him. And fortunately, there's quite a bit of, again... Batman's the headliner, so we we got to give it to them. But it takes four more issues before we get back to Jonah X after we leave him. <laughs> yeah, some interesting stuff. Nick uh, Nick Darrington does some very very nice art, so there's some nice stuff in there. If you, yeah. you know, if you're into the Batman stuff, it's very looks very very good. Mm. But we finally get an explanation of what the egg is. And 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 out of left field. It's a malfunctioning white lantern ring that somehow got in a Fabergé egg and eventually fell into Jonah Hex's hands. And they don't bother to explain any of that. It's I just, knew it. I knew that's yes. what it was. Why didn't you tell us? You could have saved us all a lot of trouble. You could have saved me $20. <laughs> yeah. But I think it, it holds together nicely as a as a series to read, better than the Wonder Woman stuff. And even Jonah, though he's got background appearances, 
it's not silly sort of shooting things and then being put away. It's sort of like he's interacting in a believable way and then he, then the characters go off and are doing other things and coming back, it kind of held together a bit more. But And uh, as you say, the artwork is really nice, actually. I quite like that. Yeah, he did a fine job. And luckily, Jonah does come back at the, at the very, very end of the story, issue 14. Basically, is a big to-do between Batman and Vandal Savage and Nightwing and ninjas and bouncing around through time and everything like that. And at the end, Batman managed to recover the egg and the, and the White Lantern ring, which I believe he turned over to the Green Lantern Corps at the end. The egg gets put back in the museum that Ginny Hex originally donated it to. And with all the bouncing around value, Vandal Savage falls right back in the same time frame that Jonah Hex was in. So he manages to capture him for a bounty. So Jonah's happy. He got paid. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how much Jonah was going to be in that last issue. So I'm... Guess I may have to track that one down. Unfortunately, I think it was just, uh, let me grab it here. I think it was just the last page, honestly. Yeah, panel uh, or two. Yeah, and it's not even necessarily a close-up, but yeah, it's definitely Jonah. But yeah, if you yeah. want if you want the full story, yeah, it's worth picking up. Yeah. As Darren so, said, it does hold together a lot better than the Wonder Woman. A, a nice little fun read. I quite like DC Universe where there's sort of like a mix of different characters and you, you're introduced to them and they sort of have a little adventure and uh, it holds together well as that kind of read. Well, I think it may have been actually a better story because they needed to use it as a launching off point for Ginny being in Young Justice. Yeah, it adds a little, yeah, it definitely helps that you got a little bit of her backstory. I would have liked a little more of it, of this bit with the egg, as more just the case of how did Jonah get a hold of this, especially when you get over to Young Justice. And unfortunately, we're recording a little bit too close to when Young Justice number 10 dropped for us to recover that, but we're, we're going to unpack that in the next episode. So right now we're just covering issues uh, six through nine, which unfortunately Ginny doesn't get a lot to do in these. She's, she's following Jonah's footsteps in the case that she's being in the background on some of these. Yeah, so I appreciate some of the storytelling techniques. It kind of reminds me a little bit of how some books with Keith Giffen's junk the dialogue down to little bits of snippets and it's enough that you know what's going on, but it doesn't bother actually explaining what's going on. It's just sort of, what, we're trapped, what are we, well, well, let's do it. And then, but it doesn't really deserve attention of the readers until like sort of eight or nine, where we got some backstory of the Green Lantern character. Mm -hmm. The girl and that's then, going Teen Lantern, yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly it was like, oh, this is a different kind of storytelling from what you've been doing so far. And suddenly I'm quite interested in following this issue. Whereas the previous ones are just sort of, you know, I like Amethyst and the Amethyst world and what's going on in that, but uh, it only really earned my real attention right at sort of eight or nine. It was in your comment about the Keith Giffen stuff caught my ear because issue seven, the whole deal with Dr. Fate trying to get them back through the multiverse properly. Mm. Those two pages read very much like a Keith Giffen Justice League story. Mm. You know, someone who's supposed to be super competent is slightly off kilter and things aren't going right. And while it was funny, it didn't seem like Dr. Fate should have been the guy cracking the jokes or making the mistakes. So. Yeah, that's 
one thing I've definitely been noticing is I think I mentioned it in the last episode is the characters, it all kind of blends together. Very few of them have an individual voice. It's like you could kind of just swap swap around dialogue. But yeah, I, yeah, looking at it again, yeah, that Dr. Fate stuff definitely does sound like Keith Tiffin dialogue. But yeah, to, to back up about that, you're wondering how we got, for those of you wondering, how do we get Dr. Fate in an Amethyst Gemworld story after they left Gemworld in issue six at the very end? Basically, they end up bouncing through the multiverse because somebody wanted to get them the heck out of Gemworld very quickly and just kind of shoved them out into the world. So issue seven, they're jumping through a bunch of worlds. They end up in this little cartoon chibi world. They end end up on i believe the uh i believe it's be called earth c where captain carrot is right but jenny literally starts yelling i am going to have a stroke because she mm-hmm. can't deal with cartoon rabbits and yeah and they, they eventually end up uh, in kingdom come yeah so i'll say it looks like a sort of a kingdom come universe and then after that we bounce over to what they're calling earth three but it doesn't have a full earth three vibe it's it's close to it uh, maybe earth three a <laughs> i'm gonna call hey. it earth three a they're just making it all up, I think. I don't. How how dare they just make up the comics? That's not that's not right. Mm. It's not. <laughs> why, do, why do I have a who's who guide if they're just going to make things up on us? That's not mm. right. <laughs> when they end up in our in our Earth three, they run into course uh, evil versions of themselves, and there is a, a evil version of Jenny Hex who's just called Hex, and she dresses all in black, and she's got an eye patch. Well, I found that really grating. They haven't even really established who Ginny is and suddenly they're creating an anti-Ginny. Well, what is she anti? Yeah, yeah, that's what was annoying me and why I'm calling this Earth 3A because it's like, you're just taking the character, you're just saying, I'm going to say they're evil now. It's like, you're not really putting anything behind them. Earth 3 isn't just, you know, it's Superman but evil, you know, there's a little more to that. There's some backstory. Um, Yeah, the, the only way it could have been worse is if all the evil counterparts had Van Dykes. No, 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 no. We, we went the Doctor Who Inferno route. We gave we gave Ginny an eye patch. You know. Yeah, well, that means that means she's related to Tallulah. Ah, ah, that's why she's dressed in black. Mm. You solved it. Okay, we have a backstory for Evil Ginny now. Okay. <gasps> Comics. I can write them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, third time to do that. I'm done with it. <laughs> Uh, one of the uh, interesting things is uh, backing up a little, starting with issue six, is we're slowly but surely starting to see what's in the trunk. We knew, I think it was either issue four or five, where some of the baddies looked in the trunk and they got vaporized like it was the Ark of the Covenant. In issue six, well, we don't get to see you in it. All the rest of the guys in Young Justice looking at it and they're going, is that a, uh, what is it? Oh my God, is that a... That has a note that says, don't touch. I want to touch it. Don't touch it. <laughs> so there's definitely some stuff in there. And enough that when evil Ginny comes around, she's like, I want the trunk. She knows what's in there already. Maybe she's mm. got an equivalent over on her world that's full of, you know, nasty, nasty stuff. Who knows? Well, and he, Dr. Fate wanted it out of there, too. He looked inside. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like, this does not belong here. Get it as far away from us as possible. So now this makes me wonder what kind of new backstory they're going to be spinning for Hex. I mean, he collects a Fabergé egg. What all other kinds of things is he going to be collecting? Are we going to be seeing some of those stories? Is he going to be like, you know, an 1800s Indiana Jones, for crying out loud? Can't, cannot say. We'll be digging this definitely a little more in the next episode when we get to issue 10, and hopefully by that time we'll have a couple more issues that'll be exploring this. 
I'll be honest, I want to get a hold of Brian Michael Bendis and try and get him on this gig so we can pin him down and ask him some mm. stuff. One thing that, you're, of course, we keep bringing up Keith Giffen regarding the dialogue and stuff. One thing that occurred to me the other day regarding this stuff, how it's plotted, how it's going out. This is reminding me, actually, of the Future Hex stuff. The way Fleischer just went from action to action to action. There wasn't much character moments. It was just constantly, we're going, we're going, we're going, we're going. And, you know, it's that's not mm. necessarily a compliment on that one unfortunately because <laughs> yeah i would like to slow down it's like let's learn about these people because they still have the mystery of why do we remember each other when we don't have a history sort of thing of course being readers we know they have a history but they don't remember it mm. so yeah that part still needs to be solved unless this is tied up with doomsday clock which i don't know if it's ever going to end anyways we are moving on to yeah, speaking of infinite earths and multiverse yeah with uh, those of you that watch cw shows you probably know uh, crisis on infinite earths crossovers coming up that's starting in december i think it's mid mid or late December. I'm not 100% on that going into January. And at the very least on the Legends of Tomorrow episodes, we get Jonathan Sheck back as Jonah Hex. Yay! Mm. I don't know how much more he's going to be into it. At the very least, he'll probably be in the Legends episode. And there's been some pictures posted online. Sheck posted some. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, Shecky Bo doesn't have the scar there. He's dressed as Jonah, but there's no scars on his face. So We're talking yeah. pre-Civil War? Or maybe Civil War and pre-scarring? Yeah, is this before the Civil War? Is this before he gets scarred or is this a Jonah Hex from another reality? I mean we are talking Infinite Earths here. They are pulling in darn near everybody. Are we just gonna, like oh we can't get Josh Brolin so we'll just do Shaq in two roles? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well they're certainly getting a lot of mileage in the fan sort of genre um, websites and press that it keeps coming up in my news feeds all the time and just the a genuine interest in how they're going to connect all these things and the characters that are in and it gets them a bit of mileage saying well it's uh, is Lucifer going to be in it? No, Lucifer releases, an actor who plays Lucifer releases a statement saying, but you never know and things. So certainly raising the profile of the shows a lot. Yeah, it is a question. Of, yeah, how is the story going to pull together when you've got three people playing the Flash and you've got four Supermans running around and you, it took them 12 issues and a lot of crossover tie-ins last time. I don't know mm. how this is going to work. I mean, usually when they do these crossover episodes, it's just four or five episodes. They just go, you know, from Flash to Arrow to Legends to Super girl and such so it's like are we going to get two of each this time are we actually going to boil this down to like five episodes yeah, it's a lot to I really don't know well, I know some of the stuff is already in the current episodes I've been hearing about you know monitor and anti-monitor and uh, such like that just like again like back in the day crisis where it actually monitors start appearing I think in like 1982 or 83 and it was a slow build and then all of a sudden bango here's crisis that might be what's going on here Dwayne you keep up on the shows don't you um, I haven't for a while um, oh yeah sadly the Flash got to be kind of repetitive and Legends of Tomorrow kind of went off in a direction I didn't care for. I, I really enjoyed the storylines where they were running into the old the old obscure stuff. You know, they had hinted at running into, you know, the Red Tornado and Sergeant Rock and going back into the Silver Age and Bronze Age stuff and they, that never really panned out. Yeah, yeah, they never came through on the uh, Sergeant Rock teases, did they? Yeah, that, well, they did have an episode where they were in World War II and fought Nazis. Ah. That explained the World War II helmet, but you know, I think everyone read into a World War II helmet and thought, oh, Sergeant Rock, we're going to be getting all this old good comic stuff. I remember even Sheck said he actually wanted to be Sergeant Rock. I think that was one of his auditions. He uh, landed Jonah Hex instead. That would have been interesting. Here's here's another Infinite Earths with you. Jonathan Sheck doing Sergeant Rock instead of Jonah Hex. Or doing them both in Crisis. Yes, I mean, Brandon Routh is doing the Atom and Kingdom Come Superman mm-hmm. at the same time in the episode, so why not? Yeah. That's the secret. The publicity photos we're seeing with Sheck in the uniform with no scar, he's actually playing Sergeant 
Carhartt rock in a Confederate uniform. That's, uh, that's the spoiler uh, for you kids. You hit it here first. I'm sorry, Greg Berlanti. I let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> TV, she can write it. Yes. <laughs> Yes, pay me. But as far yeah, as far as TV goes, another thing that hit, this is pure rumor. We have no idea if this is true. This was reported by WeGotThisCovered.com. I believe, Darren, I believe you're the one that found this, that there's a rumor going around that they are rebooting Jonah Hex, it, whether it's going to be TV or a movie or what, but this is the rumor going around within media, mul- the multimedia, not the comics, that there's going to be a Jonah Hex reboot. Well, and that makes sense. Some of my folks that keep their ear to the entertainment industry have told me that DC Universe is going to be going away as a streaming service, and all of that is going to be going to HBO, because Warner Brothers owns HBO, and that's how... Uh, Yes, the HBO Max. Disney. So. Yeah, HBO Max has already announced uh, a couple weeks ago. They announced a Green Lantern series. They announced a anthology series under the umbrella title Strange Adventures, which maybe that's where the Jonah Hex rumors come from. Maybe he's getting an episode because my understanding it's going to be rotating. It's going to be different characters every episode. Makes sense. It's like the comic, the old one. And while there's no names attached to this or anything, we decided to put up a little straw poll over on Jonah Hex via Pony Express on Facebook and ask, who would you like to see? Who would you like to be in charge? And we got a few answers. Jeff Butler would like to see Thomas Jane come back. He did the voice of Jonah Hex in the DC Showcase animated short that came out during the time of the movie. He'd like to see him play live action, which Jane did apply for. He actually got a friend to do a makeup test and everything, but unfortunately he didn't land the role. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you feel about the movie. Cheryl DeLarosa is also playing for Thomas Jane. She also suggested Jeffrey Dean Morgan, as did Henry Joseph Feeks. Sure. Yep, Negan. And ironically, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, for those who don't know, played Jeb Turnbull in the Jonah Hex movie. I'm not 100% if he got a credit, but that was him. I believe yeah. it was uncredited. But also, in, uh, less, on a less serious note, Daniel Patezic voted for Dan DeVito as Jonah Hex. And my friend Michael Darth Davis wants himself to play Hex, and he wants me to direct. I have no directing experience, but apparently Arya is getting directing experience, so maybe we could get her on. The biggest pitch here was from Todd Wagner, who said this was an animated series, he wants Thomas Jane back for the voice, or Roger Clark from Red Dead Redemption 2. If we do a live-action show, he wants it on TNT with the producers of HBO's Deadwood and Netflix's Godless, making a gritty Western epic. No magic or science fiction stuff in it, Wagner says. And actors of his choosing are Garrett Hedlund or Joel Edgerton. Garrett Hedlund played Sam Flynn in Tron Legacy. That's where I know the name from. My husband is a huge Tron fan, so I've seen this movie okay. many times. For a little bit of trivia, this came out the exact same year as the Jonah Hex movie. That was a busy year for myself and my husband. We both got to see things on the big screen that we never thought we'd get to see. Joel Edgerton. He's done quite a bit of stuff. He was in Zero Dark Thirty. He was in Revenge of the Sith. If I recall, he played uh, young uh, Owen Lars. I'll have to refer to some pictures, but I'm drawing a blank. Oh, he's Australian. You probably know him. When was the last time you were in New South Wales? Uh, never. <laughs> but, you know. But, yeah, both of them, both of them pretty good-looking guys. I can't necessarily say, oh, yes, that's Jonah Hex, but good actors, decent actors. I guess it all depends on the material you give them. I was interested to see that on my Netflix coming soon, Jonah Hex was popping up next week. 
here in New Zealand. So, really? Yeah. If you're in New Zealand, or maybe it'll turn up all over the world, Jonah Hex is there. Enjoy. There is. I've heard from so folks in the steampunk community, it does have a bit of a cult following, the movie. There are folks that like it. As I, as I tell people, I like parts, you know. Overall, maybe not the best movie, but Josh Brolin gives it his, his all. If it was anybody but Josh Brolin, I don't think I'd be able to watch a minute of it. Yeah. You know? We have to do a long-form review of it, but it's sort of like three or four really interesting films that are chopped down and combined into one really like a uh, film yeah like they couldn't decide what direction they went so they went all directions yes yeah it's an issue well if you can get your hands on the blu-ray there's all kinds of deleted scenes which if they'd have left it in was even more of a hideous mismatch and actually listening to the director's commentary at times is more interesting than the film yeah, we should do a watch-along, our own director's commentary. I really would like to do a watch-along, especially because next next year, 2020, that will be that'll be 10 years since the movie. And Lord uh, knows, no, who knows, by that time, there might be minutes. news about something new. I don't know if I can scream for a solid 80 minutes. It Bite down on your knuckles or something. Yeah. I don't know. Just okay, like, it'll, yeah. it'll be okay. You can make it through. You just hear... <laughs> Shh, shh, it's okay. Well, oh. maybe if you're ever in a car accident and have amnesia, we'll schedule it quick, really quickly. Quick, get him to watch it while he can't remember. Floods, it all floods back to him in this. Yeah, this it'll be, it'll, it'll be like that um, documentary that's uh, doing the rounds on Netflix about the, about the twin brother who gets amnesia and then the other brother tells them he had a really nice life and then later on that they find out that actually he didn't have a really nice life and the fallout from what you think of your twin brother after he's made you believe you had a perfect life and you didn't i don't know that one now, if you recall where we last left off, Jonah Hex, his mama left him when he was about 10 or so, and not long after that, he had his first experience with the law and guns. There's a bit of a bit of a jump after that in the timeline. We don't see Jonah again for a couple years, not until he's about 13 years old. The first time we saw that was in Jonah Hex, Volume 1, Number 7. The publication of this is in the middle of uh, what I usually refer to as the fugitive storyline. It ran from Jonah Hex Number 2 to Number 16, where basically he's on the run the entire time he's been framed by quentin turnbull and stuff so we have this big flashback dropped right in the middle of a big story this is what we learn about within uh the time of the comics being released is the biggest chunk of backstory we've gotten on jonah since we learned about fort charlotte massacre but this takes place according to this july 1851 when jonah hicks was 13 years old this is before we learned he had a birthday though his birthday was on november 1st though so he'd actually be about 12 but we're gonna ignore that because we don't want Dwayne getting a headache numbers they hurt well at the very least figuring out jonah's age at any given moment it hurts <laughs> of course we discussed in the previous volume about that jonah's dad was a drunken old reprobate and such like that not the best daddy ever he did not win dad of the year at any moment that i'm aware of and this definitely this incident he's, did not help he's rising to new depths of dadness here yes <laughs> Yeah, this tale has only been told in its more or less entirety twice. First being Jonah Hex number seven, and then later on with Palmiotti and Gray went at it. They retold more or less the same story in Jonah Hex volume two, number 14. A little bit of difference here and there. In the first version, we just know it's out west. By the time we get to Palmiotti and Gray, they say it's very specifically that Jonah and his dad are living in Greeley, Colorado, which is kind of funny when you think of the stuff we looked at before. Palmiotti and Gray at one point claimed that Jonah Hex was born in Missouri and grew up in Missouri. Right, nor northwestern Missouri. 
as and, a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. But by this point, which published before the Missouri references, they said this was Colorado, which is really odd because there's also an issue, flashback, I believe we covered it before, where Joan is confronted by some kids and they say, what's your name, Puke? Which I guess is a not so nice nickname for folks from Missouri. And so the first thing Jonah has says is, I'm not from Missouri, but now we know he is. Jonah was lying. <laughs> Basically, Dad's got in his head to pick up a grub steak and head out to California and get on another gold rush. But he doesn't have a lot of capital to sell. He's got his moonshine, and he's got not much else. Except... Yeah. Before we get to that, there is a little more in the under the Palmardi and Gray in the, in the issue 14, where before they head out, Pa decides to teach uh, Jonah a lesson when he's being a little defiant and throws him into the cesspit under the outhouse, <laughs> saying about he never wanted kids anyways. That's why he named him Jonah, kicks him into the outhouse, and basically tells him that he must do like the biblical Jonah and pray for God to get him out of the cesspit. He eventually does climb out, and when he does, Pa offers Jonah a gun you want to shoot me? You know, you want to you want to get even with me? Go ahead. Jonah is smart and does not take the gun. And that's when Woodson Hex delivers probably some of the most decent life lessons that he's ever given Jonah. Basically just rattles this off. This has never been printed before this, but when you read it, you definitely get the vibe that, yes, Jonah has really been living by these lessons his entire life. He internalized this. Out of anything from his dad, he remembered this and he took it to heart. Basically, Woodson telling uh, Jonah, never cross me, never lie or steal or bend for favor. Never betray a trust, never inflict pain deliberately unless the situation warrants it. Never and never set me as your example because I broke all them rules and you see my life's result plain as day before you, boy. And yeah, it's pretty much that pretty much is uh, Jonah Hex in a nutshell. You you hire him for a job, he will finish this job. He's very good at inflicting pain when the situation warrants it, that's for damn sure. Yeah. But after that scene is about where Leisher's rendition and Palmati and Gray's rendition starts to mesh back up again. They're hitting the road. In the case Fleischer's, we don't know where it's taking place, but in, in Palmati and Gray, they say they've gotten all the way to Black Hills of Arizona and entered Apache territory. When you go over to Fleischer's, they're heading into Apache territory very, very deliberately, in this case, to deliver moonshine. In both cases, Woodson Hex turns Jonah over to the Apache. In Fleischer's case, it's for a grub stake, it's for money, so he can go out to California, get a mine, get gold, be rich, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, for, he gets several piles of pelts from the Indians that he'll be able to swap yes. money. Yes, you're right. Not actual physical money, it's pelts. You're right. It's like, oh yeah, and here's some extra since you're giving us the kid. Okay, thank you. Jonah was not informed about this ahead of time. Pa, you've got poor communication skills. <laughs> I guess he didn't. I figured it was a need-to-know basis, perhaps. While over in Palmati and Gray, while there's no pelts exchanged, you do got to wonder, was there any forethought to this? Or was it a spur of the moment? They're not going to let me pass by unless I give them some sort of tribute. Here's a kid. Bang. Kick him out of the wagon. Or did he really at some point figure, I am going to ditch this kid at some point. This is the first opportunity. There he goes. I would lean more toward the latter. Whether just it was here or knowing, California, Jonah was going over the side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just knowing Woodson and not wanting to be saddled with anybody dragging him down or being a bad memory of his wife or anything else. Just, he, I mean, he used Jonah for fighting in order to raise money. He used him to work around the house. He, he used him every chance he got. And this was just a chance to divest himself of another burden and be on his way to the gold rush. Yeah, there is in uh, Jonah Hex No Way Back, the nice hardcover that was released around the time of the movie. There's a little bit in there of a younger, presumably younger Woodson Hex before he got married. And he's saying in there about even that he hates 
kids. He never wants kids, stuff like that. So, yeah, this is possibly a long time coming. If you think about it, I'm surprised he kept Kid around for three years after after, uh, Ginny, after his wife, left. But the long story short is, basically, Jonah has gone from being a slave to his dad to a slave to the Apache. You do gotta wonder, is like, did they treat him any worse than than his dad did? His dad, who you know had no problem with beating him in a drop of a hat, shoving him in, shoving him in a cesspit under the outhouse, making him eat his own pet raccoon. It looks like they worked him hard, and there's snippets indicating that he's been tied up and whipped or something. So yeah, he's having a hard job of it. But he's looking pretty healthy at the end of it, able to fight cougars barehanded. So it's that all is, good. That is true. That is true. Yeah, that's one thing I enjoyed about the cover of Jonah Hex number seven is you know, him, him fighting the mountain lion. And you're seeing Jonah from the left side. And it appears that the mountain lion is clawing his right, the right side of his face. So when yeah. I first saw this, I was going, oh, crap, that's how he got the scar. Yeah, that is. That is clever. Yeah. So they kind of did that again. Palmati and Gray did that again uh, when they were retelling Jonah's origin with him getting whipped on the right side of his face. And folks were wondering if they were going to change the history of the scar at that point. Yeah, issue 13. And yeah, on the cover even, it looks like his face is already messed up. It was definitely a good fake out because, yeah, when I remember, we'll get to that a little bit later. But yeah, when I read that, I was like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. But uh, we don't get a whole lot of history of what Jonah, what happens when he's with the Apache and stuff like that. Dwayne, you did a little bit of looking up, because as I was saying, with Palmati and Gray, they say at Black Hills uh, Apache, but if you go over to Joe Lansdale and the uh, Vertigo stuff, while he doesn't go a whole lot into Jonah's backstory, he does mention a couple times that Jonah lived with the Mescalero Apache, which is in Texas. Two, di- yeah. two different uh, types here. Yeah, whenever I was first looking this up, I was assuming that they were traveling from Missouri to California. So looking up all the different Apaches, there are uh, the Plains Apaches, which are in southwest Oklahoma. And I was thinking, oh, that makes sense. Those were the ones that they ran into, you know, from Missouri out to California. But the problem there in the Jonah Hex 7, the story is that the Apaches and the Kiowa are kind of at odds with one another. And after Jonah becomes Mm. the stepson, more or less, or the adopted son of the chief, he has to go steal ponies from the Kiowa. The thing is, the Plains Apaches and the Kiowa got along quite well, and they would even serve on each other's councils. So that kind of chucks the Plains Apaches completely out the window. Yeah, going more with the Arizona and Texas Apaches, that's probably more the group that he fell in line with. Yeah, it's a bit of the trouble with some of the stuff from the 1970s. They kind of, it's very general. It's yeah. very it's very generic. It's probably, unfortunately, not a lot of research put into the older stuff. You had to use a card catalog. I mean, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. I definitely prefer the Google. It's much easier. But yeah, I mean, even uh, the name of Jonah's rival in the tribe he's in, Notante, I don't even know if that actually is an Apache name or if they just made that up. I think I tried looking it up once and I wasn't really getting any information on that. I would lean more towards stuff being made up. And it wasn't even until many, many years later, actually right at the very end of Palmati and Gray's run with All-Star Western, that they even gave the chief a name. They started calling him Cotante. You know, instead of Notante, it was Cotante for the dad, uh, Notante for the son. That was All-Star Western number 28. It took, us like three decades in between for this guy to get a name even. A little bit too much, a little bit too much vagary on that end. But yeah, as you were saying about Jonah becoming basically adopted son of the chief, as we were talking about the cougar, a few minutes ago, basically two years after Jonah was born of the tribe. Yeah, in both versions, Jonah Hex saves the chief of the tribe from a cougar attack. Just kind of came out of nowhere, and it's a little more graphic in the original Fleischer. 
where he's literally getting clawed. I mean, it's literally describing the puma, as I refer mm. to it specifically, just clawing up Jonah's back, and they're actually talking about the furrows, and you can see that his back is getting clawed up. It's like, if he didn't have any scars before from his dad or from getting whipped by the Apache, he's got scars now. Puma just dug into him. Does manage to kill it, and that definitely earns him a lot of mad props for the Apache, and they're like, okay, you're no longer a slave. You are now the chief's adopted son, which no Tante does not like. Well, especially yeah. when Jonah started surpassing him in horsemanship and axe throwing, which was a thing back then. So Yeah, an- another dad who doesn't really pay attention to his son, but oh, I'll just name someone else as my son. A son by birth can just lump it. Yeah, especially when Jonah starts getting the eye for a lovely young, young gal named White Fawn, who Notante also had an eye for. Definitely not good. And there's a little more about that in Jonah Hex Volume 2, number 56. We get a little more about their relationship, both Notante's animosity towards him and White Fawn having a bit of a thing for Jonah. She definitely does not appear to like Notante. It seems, seems the only way, reason she puts up with him, and probably anybody puts up with him, is the fact that he's Notante is the chief's son. Yeah, they didn't touch on her very much in the Fleischer stuff. And I, I liked it that the Palmati Gray stuff came back and revisited her whole relationship. Kind of gave Notante more reason to hate Jonah and more reason to rig the contest that they eventually end up having whenever Jonah comes back. Yeah, instead of just, it is what it is. It's like, no, we're going to, we got reasons. But as we were saying, not long after Jonah becomes adopted uh, son of Kotante, we leave him in the name, they go to the, uh, how do you say, is it Kiowa? Kiowa. Kiowa, Kiowa. I've been saying it wrong all this time. Yeah, I may be <laughs> saying been... it wrong. That's how I grew up pronouncing it, so. I always, I always read it as Kiowa, but you're out in Oklahoma, so you're probably a bit you know, closer to it than I am. You're probably a little more proper than I am. It's my guess. We get it wrong all the time over here in New Zealand. (laughs) How often does that come up over there? Uh, Back when Westerns were big on TV in the 60s and late 70s is probably the last time. (laughs) Yeah, they go over to the uh, next tribe over, yeah, to steal horses. And that's when Notante sees this as his uh, time's like, okay, I am getting rid of Jonah Hex. I'm getting him the heck out of here. Basically betrays him, leaves him for uh, dead, uh, take him out, and just in classic bad guy fashion, I'm going to presume that you died, and I'm going to leave, and I'm not going to bother to witness it. <laughs> so much to Notante's disadvantage, because Jonah does survive. And here's, as of the beginning of our tale, we do have a, a bit of a split. Palmiotti and Gray, the first time they tell it, they basically just say that Jonah kills all the guys and manages to walk out of there. But later on, in All-Star Western number zero, they revise it back to what Fleischer originally told, which was Jonah was captured, he was getting tortured, and then a bunch of Indian hunters came in and wiped out the entire tribe, and they quote-unquote rescued Jonah. (laughs) Yeah, by by shooting him in the gut whenever he starts lipping off, yeah. Yes! (laughs) It's all a learning experience. Jonah is eventually found by uh, somebody who does not shoot first and ask questions later and nurse back to health. By this time, it's uh, wintertime, unfortunately, and the Apache have moved on. Basically, Jonah's lost his family again. He's lost White Fawn. He doesn't know. As far as they know, he's dead. No, Tante's like, oh, no, no, it was terrible. They all they all ganged up on him, and I barely got out alive. I did my best. And so Jonah kind of has to go on with his life. Being uh, rescued by a trapper, I'm going to presume that's probably why he eventually moved on to becoming a scout for the Army, the Union Army, we should specify. Yeah, Fleischer points out that he hunted buffalo for the U.S. Army and then signed on as a tracker and a scout. Yeah, kind of glosses over that for the moment. It's not until many years later that we start getting a little more filled in on that. 
the first fuller reference to Jonah's scouting days doesn't come till Jonah Hex Volume 1, number uh, 48. This is during the period, right around the middle of the period, where Jonah's married to Mei Ling. So again, we have more flashback here in the middle. An old friend of his from his scouting days named Solomon Graves comes by to visit. And Solomon's got a bit of PTSD from being attacked by the Paiutes back when they were uh, scouts working out of Fort Winona. Unfortunately, he got a couple of his fingers chopped off. And so he's got a bit of a mad on for Paiutes, poor guy. That was a very good story. I really enjoyed the artwork on it and the whole PTSD that he suffered from. Zuniga just did a fantastic job in portraying that as a fever dream, and you're not sure what's real and what isn't. Yeah, wall-to-wall, all the art in there is wonderful, yeah. The only downside was the cover gives away the ending, sadly. So Yeah, unfortunately, we were kind of bad about that back then, yeah. Yeah, are you going to let your old friend die a slow death by torture or shoot him yourself? Well, (laughs) when we get to that point, well, geez, that's a surprise. So It's called telegraphing. (laughs) It does meet a very sad end there. And we can only presume that this incident and all happened before Jonah met a lovely young lady by the name of Cassie Wainwright. We first learned about her in Jonah Hex Volume 1, number 65. It's actually the beginning of a very, very long story with a lot of flashbacks. Eventually, the entire story wraps up by Jonah Hex number 71. Flashbacks only run a few issues. Cassie was the daughter of a Colonel Wainwright, of a who was the head of a unnamed Union fort in Comanche territory. And even though Jonah came from a very rough background, you know, raised by Apache and stuff like that, apparently he made a well enough impression on both her and her dad that he was able to get engaged to this young lady. And they were planning on getting married. Unfortunately, some of Jonah's fellow scouts at this unnamed fort decided to rob the payroll not long before they were going to get married. And Cassie had headed out on the paymaster's wagon to town to collect her wedding dress. And on the way back, that's when they decided to rob the paymaster's wagon. Of course, you can't have any witnesses. They knock out, yep, exactly, knock out poor Cassie and leave her to the Comanches. It is not a pretty sight, and the comics code does not go into much details. We should probably be happy for that. Yeah, it was it was gruesome enough as they showed her. You could basically tell she was up against a tree with arrows run through her that were holding her to the tree. Yeah, it was it was gruesome enough as it was. So Jonah says in number sixty-five, before we actually see the scene, we see her get knocked out, but we don't see the aftermath for a few more issues. We didn't find Cassie till three days later, and what we did find would make a grown man weep to look at. Very, very sad there, because you see in some of the flashbacks, they definitely in love with each other. There's actually a scene in one of the number 66, I think it is, that shows some skinny dipping. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's as much of the comic code will show skinny dipping back then. But yeah, it's actually it's grief and tragedy all around because after they bring Cassie's body back to the fort, Colonel Wayne White immediately blames himself for his daughter's death. He locks himself in his office and he shoots himself in the head. It's like one death and then another death. It's just... Luckily, all these flashbacks are, are shown in the midst of Jonah finally getting revenge on the guys that did this to Cassie Wainwright and inadvertently caused the death of Colonel Wainwright. And I, I, what I thought was interesting about this whole storyline was Jonah didn't actively go seeking these guys out. He ends up being recognized by one of them, and that kind of puts the wheels in motion. This guy decides to kill Jonah before he kills me. Of course, he doesn't. Jonah finds a photograph that dredges up all these memories, and then Jonah decides, well, I guess I'll look up these other guys and see what's going on with them. And it's a good, well, from 65 to 71, it's a huge multi-issue 
story that whenever we get to the end, you think, oh, it's just about over. And then it kind of just goes off into left field with this whole crazed Manitou Indian that's going to resurrect the entire Indian nation. And one of the guys ends up having somewhat of a redemptive period or a, a flash of brilliance that he's going to make good on all the horrible things he ever did. So I found it one of the better story arcs in Jonah Hex. It kind of reminds me of the whole China episode. It mm -hmm. covers quite a few issues and goes down roads I didn't expect at the time. So definitely worth seeking out and reading. Yeah, it does kind of, in my opinion, kind of peter out at the end, like you said, about the Indian trying to resurrect all the Apache and everything. So it's like, we're almost done with the story, and then it's kind of veered off. The, yeah, mm -hmm. the redemption part is good. But yeah, in, individually, which happens with each of these guys, each of these guys has their own strengths and weaknesses. We have a different way of dealing with them. Or Jonah has a different way of dealing with each one. They have a different way of dealing with him. Some One of the guys basically throws his wife at Jonah, like, here, distract yeah. him. And of course, he does, Jonah does not react, and, you know, he's hands off, and she's like, Later on, he's like, he's more of a man than you ever were, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I want to know what it's like to be kissed by a real man. It's like, oh, oh yes. Burn. Yeah. <laughs> Here in the middle of town. A little, little sugar and Jonah rides off, yep. <laughs> Golly, how do you live with yourself? Your wife is... But, Pack it yeah, up I and we'll have to... after that one. Man. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to cover those issues a little more in-depth at some point down the line, because, yeah, this is... But here we get a bit of a uh, problem with Jonah Hex history, because we end up with this... After this, we have this gap. We've got... We're basically Jonah... This, this stuff here happened in 1859. Jonah drops off the map for about two years. We got nothing we can pin... We got very little we can pin very, very specifically to this time. I think he went uh, backpacking in Europe to find himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says in the number 65, again, after the death of Cassie, he says about he was looking high and low for these guys, but they'd all split up, the trail went cold, and he just simply says, and then come the war, as if this explains everything. And no, it doesn't really explain this two-year gap entirely. But yeah, other, other than backpacking in Europe... He came to New Zealand. That's my theory. There you uh, go. Okay. We can go with that. I can go with that. Yeah, the only thing we have close to an answer, and it's more questions than answers, is if I'm doing my math correctly. Jonah Hex, Volume 2, Number 6. This is the Nuns with Guns issue. Or there are a nun with a gun in question is a gal by the name of Evelyn that apparently Jonah knows from way back when. Now, there's no specific dates given on it. It says that it's been 17 years since he's seen her. But the funny thing is, this issue was released around the time that they did the one year later jump in the, in the DC books. Of course, Jonah Hex being set in the past, you don't really have to deal with, you know, the one year later stuff. So they did a gag in the next issue box where they said 130 years ago instead <laughs> of one year later. So the funny thing is, if you lay that math over the seven years, the date, the date that they are talking about that they last saw each other would be 1859. Because if you got to, if you guesstimate 150, uh, 130 years from when the thing was published, means it took place in 1876. 17 years before that, 1859. So it's like, you then got to wonder, what happened? How did they meet? What was, did they have a relationship? Was this like the first woman that Jonah kind of fell in with after Cassie's death? And then there's that whole quote that Evelyn does back at Jonah. Apparently something he said to her, I'm presuming. As self-preservation is the instinct you possess, I suggest you ride on and don't stop until the past is behind you. It's like, what happened? Mm -hmm. I need to know. 
Unfortunately, that's about all we have Jonah that we can chart definitely before he appears in his Confederate gray uniform for the very first time. So we're going to stop right here with our little timeline of Jonah Hex. And next episode, we'll pick up right we left off and we'll be hitting into the war years. And there's a quite a bit there to cover as well. So that's about the end here for this episode of Via Pony Express. We hope you enjoyed listening to us. And if you like what you heard, you know, we greatly appreciate it. If you help spread the word about our little podcast across all them little social media goo out here, uh, you can join our posse over at facebook.com slash Via Pony Express, where you'll find all the latest news and weekly offerings. Plus, you can leave comments, participate in polls, and browse through our extensive Jonah Hex photo gallery. You can also drop us a line anytime at Jonah Hex via Pony Express at gmail.com. Check out Darren's Jonah Hex Corral. You can go to lonely.geek.nz slash hex. Uh, Dwayne's Matching Groons blog can be found at jonahhex.blogspot.com. You can keep up with uh, Are You Kidding by following at Are You Kidding on Twitter and at Embergeist on Tumblr. And for the latest installment of my illustrated history of Jonah Hex, it's available on susanhillwig.blogspot.com. The latest entry just, just went up on November 1st, so we got fresh stuff for you to look at. It's a good read. Yeah, some of the issues discussed in this latest entry will actually be discussed in the next episode. So bone up, kids. The theme music used in this episode is Driving to the Delta by Lobo Loco off their 2018 album Arkham. Thanks to actor Jonathan Sheck for his cameo recording of the Jonah Hex tagline. All characters mentioned in this podcast are copyright their respective companies and creators. On behalf of all of us here at Via Pony Express, thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all out on the trail. Bye. Thanks. Take it easy. And don't sue us. Throw that in just in case. We may need it. It's called covering our butts. <laughs>